So uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And you know, Luke had a great idea. Inadvertently, he mentioned we should just spend the whole time thanking people sometime. I think you're right, Luke. There are so many people to honor and so many things to honor. I think that we need to do that. So make that happen, brother. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We've been in a series called Family on Mission where we're, we're learning to what it, what it means to be the church and how it is that we can walk in unity as the church. And of course, if you're going to talk about the church, well, you're going to end up in the book of Ephesians. So here we are in Ephesians, and we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and, uh, and press into something that the Lord has for us. I believe the Lord wants to just continue to teach us how to walk in unity. So look at here in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 1. It says right here, I therefore, this is Paul talking, The prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness, gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let me just stop there real quick, but this is what we've been kind of working towards these last couple of weeks. We've talked about the fact that the church is the redemptive plan of God, right? That we are salt and light, or as we sang this morning, we're his leaven. That was pretty cool uh, that we sang. We're singing that song. By the way, you know who wrote that song earlier that we were singing the uh, leaven and all that? It's Sean O'Grady. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, talk about, uh, I don't know if he's here, but uh, we've got people just writing songs and stuff. We are learning that we are God's redemptive plan and that not only did G, not, I mean, not only did sin, we've said this before, but not only did sin destroy our relationship with God, it destroyed our relationship with one another. And so not only did the cross redeem and reconcile our relationship to God, the cross, the blood of Jesus reconciled our relationship to one another. And we've actually been learning and seeing from Ephesians that we are one, that if we are sons and daughters of God, we are brothers and sisters of each other, Amen. That we're one in Christ, we're the body of Christ, we're one in Him, but if we're the body of Christ, that means we are members of what? Of one another. So we've, we've been learning that we really are a family, we really are brothers and sisters. We really do belong to one another and not just to ourselves. And that redemption, that the blood of Jesus was not just poured out to redeem us individualistically and to forgive us of our sins, although that's number one, it was also to reconcile us to one another and teach us how to love one another. And we're learning that this is what it means to be a family on mission, right? Remember Jesus, we looked at this last week, Jesus prayed, Father, that they would be one as you and I are one so that the world would know, right? And he also said so that the world would believe. Why is he saying this? Because if the church would love one another and we would look like uh, the people that God has called us to be, that the world would come to Jesus, amen? This is what it means to be a family on mission, to so love one another, so be the people that God has called us to be, that it would actually attract other people to him. And we're not talking about being a family with closed doors, right? But a family with open doors because God always wants his family to grow. Amen? It's not just we're his family. It's every person that Jesus shed his blood for. He wants them to be his kids, right? And so we want to learn how to be a family on mission, to be this redemptive agents or this redemptive work on earth. We want to learn how to be salt and light and how to walk in unity. And last week, we talked about the fact that because we're one, because we're one family, we are called to fight for our relationship. Amen? In verse 3, it says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why the unity of the Spirit? Because we already are one. The Holy Spirit isn't just living in you if you're born again. He's living in us. 
It's like, uh, you know, in a, in, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the fascia. Like literally the scientists have found that there's like this web that connects every, every part of your body is connected by every other part of the body by this like web that goes over your muscles called the fascia. That's like the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not just in you, he's in us. And he's literally connecting us and binding us and holding us together. And yet our job as brothers and sisters in Christ, as members of one another, is to fight for that unity. And last week the Holy Spirit went after something that's really destroying and undermining unity and oneness. Remember that? Jesus calls it the adulterous spirit. We talked about it. Selfishness, right? That is really destroying marriages. It's causing divorce. It's causing sexual morality. But it's also bringing disunity to, our, uh, to the church. And so the Lord is calling us as a church to be committed to one another. To fight for unity. To fight not against each other, but with each other for the, our, our relationship. And when you want the relationship more than anything else, you'll fight for it. Amen? In marriage, I always tell people that. Are you fighting one another or are you fighting for the relationship? Are you fighting to be right or are you fighting for the relationship? It's the same thing in the church. Gossip, division, etc., etc. All that is is self, isn't it? But if our relationship is the most important, then we'll do anything to preserve that. Amen? Anything in the Lord. <clears throat> now, Paul, what he does is he, he starts off in verses one through four talking about the fact that you have a calling and that that calling is not fulfilled you cannot fulfill your calling outside of 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 the community and so this calling very much the beginning of of walking out in your calling is this fighting for unity but he's going to talk about how to walk in this unity he's going to start in verse seven and he's going to explain to us how god has designed the church so that we can walk in unity because as somebody has asked me before i think it was i thought it was a brilliant question well so like if we're one like how come it doesn't look like that I go, exactly. <laughs> it's the same thing like saying, well, if I'm righteous in Christ, why do I still struggle with sin? Yeah, exactly. You've got to understand what it means to be born again, which we talk about a lot at this church, that you're born again, you're righteous in Christ, but just because the seed of righteousness in you doesn't mean you've produced that, that righteousness fruit yet. And so all of us are becoming who we already are, amen? We're, 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 we are righteous. We're not earning our salvation, but now we work out our salvation with fear and trembling as he works in us to want to do. It's the same thing with our unity. We are one in Christ, but now we've got to work this out. And so Paul's going to explain how it is we can walk this out. So listen to this in verse 7. But to each one, everyone say each one, of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so he says that in order to walk in unity, you've got to understand that each one has been given grace, has been given a gift from Jesus, and has been given this grace. Isn't that interesting? Unity... Unity, right off the bat, we realize unity is simply each person, each one, doing what God has called them to do in community. You don't have unity without individuals making a choice to walk in that unity. And the strength of unity is always based upon or contingent upon the strength of the individual choice. And then he goes on and he's going to explain this. as each one of us has been given grace And he goes on, therefore he says, and he's going to talk about Jesus, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. He's talking about Jesus when he died and rose again. He ascended, he sat at the Father's right hand, and he poured out the Holy Spirit and gave us these gifts. Verse 9, now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he first descended in the lower parts of the earth. He's talking about Jesus' death. But he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And that's referring to the fact that he's sitting at the Father's right hand, he's given He has all authority. He's given that authority to us as the church. Then he goes on in verse 11 and he says, 
And he himself, referring to Jesus, and he himself gave some, everyone say some, just some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all, everyone say all, all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined in it together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, obviously, he's talking about unity. Because in verse 13, he says, till we all reach the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. He's telling us how to walk in unity. He told us we need to fight for it. And now he's saying in verse 13 that that's the vision. That's the goal that we're to aim for. Till or until we reach this this unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. So how how does this work? You'll notice that he says in verse 7, each one has been given grace. Each one. But then in verse 11 he says, and he himself, Jesus, gave some, some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, some to be teachers. He's, he, he doesn't say everyone is called to be an apostle, everyone's called to be a pastor or a teacher or whatever, but some are. Some are. So he's obviously referring to a segment of the body of Christ. People who are in the body. Now, are these apostles and these prophets, aren't they a part of the body too? They're members of the body, right? They're not like outside of the body, you know what I'm saying? No, Jesus is the head of the church, and the church is his body, and these leaders, they're a part of the body, just like everyone else. These leaders have been saved by grace, amen, by every, like everyone else, right? These leaders were dead in their sins, were saved by grace, but they have been given a specific assignment, a special appointment, if you will, to do something in the body. As members of the body. Each one has grace. These have a particular assignment. And so it says right here that they have been given this, or Jesus has given some to be these, these what we call a five-fold ministry. He says in verse 12, for, or unto, with the purpose of, if you will, right? The Greek is, is referring to the, for the purpose of, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. So who are they equipping? The saints, right? It says right there. It says like an open book test, right? It's okay, open book. Open book test. Who are they equipping? For the equipping of the saints, right? So they're equipping who? Each one, aren't they? Each one. They're equipping each one to do what? The work of ministry. What does that mean, the work of ministry? The word work just simply means your job. You know, you're created to do work. Did you know that? Some of you are like, don't like that. No. You were created to work not for God, but with God, in partnership with Him. You were created to create with Him and cultivate with Him and partner with Him. And it says the work of ministry. The work ministry is a word for service. It just means serve. So you were created, and these leaders here in the church are, are, are called to be leaders to do one thing, or actually two things here, to do two things to equip or empower each person in the body, each member, to do their job 
whatever job they are called to do, whatever part they have to play in the body, they, that these leaders are called to equip or train or empower every person to do the service that they were called to do. Every one of you has a calling, as it said in chapter 4, verse 1. Each one of you has received grace. Each one of you is the saint of God. Each one of you is a member of the body of Christ. And each one of you has a work of ministry. Then he goes on, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Edifying just means to build up. If you're, a, if, you're, if, if you're a building, to build up means to make you into the building. If you're a child, to build up means to make you into an adult. It's referring to you becoming who you are called to be. Or the church, to be who the church has been called to be. So literally, it says right here, Paul says that some people in the body of Christ have this specific leadership assignment to equip everyone else to do their work of ministry and in that way to build up the church until the church becomes who the church is called to be. Right? And so these leaders, if you will, they have the blueprint. Right? Just like if you were an architect... If, you, if you're an architect, you have the blueprint and you know what it's supposed to look like and you are equipping everyone to do the work, right? Like a subcontractor or a contractor, a good one, you know? There's lots of good ones out there, but we know we've had ex- bad experiences too, right? A contractor or subcontractor who is equipping and empowering and you f- unifying everyone to get the building built. You know, a lot of times that's what I'm doing. Like in this series, I'm giving you the blueprint. But who's going to do the work? Not that I don't, because I'm a part of the body. But it's going to be all of us, right? Where do we work it out? We work it out in our life groups. We work it out in our ministries. We live it out in our personal lives, in our homes. You know, when you go home with your wife or your husband or your kids, you're still the church. You know, before you're a husband or a wife, you're brothers and sisters in Christ. You know that? Most Christians forget that. They get married, and they forget. You were a brother and sister in Christ first. Then they start getting mad at each other and expect them to meet all these needs and everything. You forget. Should you be talking to the child of God like that? Should you be treating your brother or sister like that, right? Same. So when you go home, you're still the church, and we walk it out as the church. So I, I, I give you the blueprints, if you will. My, my job is to equip you to do the work of ministry. My job is to build up the church. But listen, verse 13, till we all, you see that? Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. This is Jesus' prayer. Do you remember that? Father, they be one as we are one, so that the world would know. This is what Paul is saying. This is the goal. This is the vision of every pastor. Well, good ones. Okay, this is, this should be, the vision or the goal of every person who's been appointed as a leader in the church. That this, that we would look like that. That we would be united in faith and united in the knowledge of God. What does that mean? That means that every person or each one would know God intimately and trust Him. To, that, they would, that, that each person would believe God, believe God's word, believe what He said. And would know him intimately and his love would change them and that they would become what? It says right here, a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul is saying that when the church is unified in faith and knowing God, 
trusting and knowing him. When each person is doing the work of ministry that they've been called to do, and there's a unity in that. Each one has embraced this, but there's a unity. He says, that's when we are, he calls, it says, a perfect man. He's not saying about you individually becoming that perfect person or mature person. He's talking about us collectively. Paul had a vision of a church or that every local church would be mature. And what, what does that maturity look like? He says to the stature of the fullness of Christ. What does that mean? We look like Jesus. Collectively. That the ministry of Jesus, that the love of Jesus flows through us because we look like Jesus. Literally, the phrase here, a, the stature of the fullness of Christ, is referring to growing up into adulthood. It's the same thing as the idea of like you're a child, but you grow in stature like, right, you grow physically. It's saying that, that we as a church would grow up into, into Christ and we would look just like Jesus and we would be a mature adult Christian or a mature adult church. And he's saying that that's, what, that's our goal. And you can see that he's referring to this maturity because in verse 14 he says that we should no longer be children. See, what does it look like to be spiritually a child? What does it look like to be spiritually an adolescent? It means to be self-focused. To be focused on ourselves. And he defines it here as people who get tossed back and forth by, by schemes of the enemy and by different doctrines and different truths and cultural ideas. It's to be conformed to this world rather than be transformed by the room of our mind. To be a healthy, mature Christian or church is that we know what God said in his word. Doesn't, doesn't that take, we, we, that doesn't happen naturally, does it, right? You get saved and we got all this dysfunction in our families, right? And we've got some messed up ways of thinking and our culture's messed up. And doesn't it take work? Doesn't it take someone to train us and to teach us that we have to unlearn so much dysfunctional ways of thinking and living, don't we? Right? Am I just the only one who needed a lot of healing and deliverance when I first got saved? Isn't it, isn't it true that there, there is this maturing, isn't it? That we start off, we get saved, and we're, God loves us, but man, we're so selfish, and we just relate to people in unhealthy ways, and the church relates to itself in unhealthy ways, and yet the Lord is growing us and maturing us and purifying our motives and, and killing self and teaching us how to love so that we would be looked just like Jesus, so we wouldn't be like little children fighting and bickering. We wouldn't be like little children who are just all about me, all about me, right? And we wouldn't be like little children who, when somebody comes in and tells us a lie... We believe it, that we would have unity of faith. We'd say, no, that's what the word says. We believe God's word, like what uh, Katie was talking about. Well, man, no, I know him, who my covenant partner is. I know who my God is. He promised it, and he's going to do what he said, right? And every person knows that God loves them. Every person walks by this faith. Every person is not selfish, but is giving. And he goes on to explain then what happens in verse 16. He says, from whom, referring to the head, Christ, Christ of the head, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. By what every joint supplies. That means that every member of the body connected to every other member of the body and needs are being met because every joint or every part of the body is supplying the need that that other member needs. And he says, I love how he says it right here. He goes, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. He says a mature person, their body's doing everything it should, right? A mature church is where everyone is doing their part. Everyone's doing their part. The crazy thing is, is the, in the Greek, it's even more specific. When it says every part does its share, in the Greek, it actually says each part does its work. In verse 7, he said each one has been given grace. It's the same word right here. Each part. 
And earlier when it said that each, uh, that the, the, the apostles and all that are empowering people to be equipped for the work of ministry, same word right here. Each part does its work. See, the Greek just makes it even more painfully clear what Paul's talking about. He's saying that the only way for us to walk in unity is when each of us do our part. When each of us, and what's your part? The assignment or the calling that God has called you to. The work that God has given you to do what? Serve others. To serve others. So the reality is, is that the leaders in a church are called to live it out, to model it, and to equip and empower the church. But the leaders of a church are not called to do everything. Are not called. It's not possible. Because there's only some that are called to be leaders. But how can some of the parts of the body do what the whole body needs to do? When that happens, it's very bad. Think, let's think about this physically for a second, like your physical body. Because Paul does use our physical body as a metaphor for the church. But we really are the body of Christ. Think about this in your physical body. If your muscles are not strong, like let's say if you don't have a strong back, or you don't have, sometimes people don't realize this, they don't have strong leg muscles, for example, and then their back starts hurting. You would never even connect the dots, right? If, you know, nowadays, we don't really know much about that. But in our sedentary culture, we'll allow certain parts of our body not to be strong, and then we'll have aches and pains in other parts of the body. Why is that happening? You want to know why that's happening? Because one part of your body is not doing what it's supposed to do. It's not strong enough. You're letting it go be neglected. And so the other parts of your body have to overcompensate. This happens with organs, right? Let's say something's going on with one of your organs. And, and believe me, God has embedded into creation survival, right? So like socially, physically, relationally, we were meant to survive, right? So when something doesn't work, God has designed in, embedded into creation that things would kind of overcompensate, but it's not good. So when, for example, an organ of yours does, isn't working right, other organs start picking up, don't they? Right? I'm not even a doctor, but like, we'll talk to Emily later. Right? But like, other parts of your body will begin to overwork, to overcompensate for what other things are not doing. That can only happen for so long. Well, because it happens, see, it, see, see um, people will talk about this in relationships. They'll say, well, you do 50%, I do 50%. Right? In marriages, 50-50, right? No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. In the world, it try, people look, work like, think it works like that. Well, 50-50, 50-50. We always think like that in terms of relationship, 50-50. It's not 50-50. That's not how oneness works. When you're one, you're one. One and one make one, right? When you're one, guess what, guess what it's supposed to be in covenant? 100%, 100%. Why? Because a kidney can't be a leg. Well, you know, I, I, I do 50% of the work and you do 50% of the work. No, 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 no. No, kidney, you do 100% of the kidney work. Leg, you do 100% of the leg work. You take responsibility to do your part. Does that make sense? Each one does their work, not someone else's work. And so if an organ is not working right, the other organ has to start picking up the work. So instead of one, both of them doing 100%, now one's doing like 60% and the other's doing 140%. And what begins to happen is it begins to cause fatigue in people's bodies physically. Organs not begin to like shut down or, or, or muscles begin to ache. And, we, and there are so many problems based on that. Well, it's the same thing in relationships. Let me give you just an example that's pretty classic from marriages. Imagine a mom 
she's really loving and serving and she's just superwoman, right? And she believes that, you know, well, I mean, you know, she wants, she, she wants to serve her family. So she cooks and she cleans and does the laundry and, and she does all this stuff and she's working real hard. She even has a job to help provide for, for the family. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, none of that's necessarily wrong. I mean, those of you who don't have kids, it's, it's, it's pretty tough. We're okay, right? You're working and you're cleaning and you're cooking and you're doing all this stuff. No, no, that's necessarily wrong. That's really good. But let's say that this wife, you know, her identity's in serving and, and she, wants to, she wants to love and she wants to serve and she feels like, man, if something doesn't get done, oh, man, it's because I'm not a good mom or it's not because I'm not a good wife, right? So she begins to put expectations on herself that I maybe shouldn't be there, right? This happens all the time. Okay, so let's imagine, though, and, and uh, it doesn't take much imagination for me because I run into this all the time. But just imagine, you know, this mom, she's working really hard and everything. But let's say, like, she, she, she goes to work and then she comes home and then she cooks the meal. And then after she cooks the meal, she, she cleans the, the dishes and then she runs off and does the laundry. And let's say that, 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 that Mr. Husband over there, he's just watching TV the whole time. Well, I, already, I worked, I worked. I just watch it. I already worked. Well, so did she. And let's say, you know, at first your kids are little and everything, and so, you know, when they're two or something like that, it's not a big deal. They don't clean up behind themselves, you know. Kids make a mess. But what happens with their teenagers? And they, and they eat, and they leave the food out, and they don't help, and they don't clean their room. And so mom, because mom's loving, mom's, it's love, you know, because love, love sacrifices. Love, love gives, right? Love doesn't complain, right? And, and love's, love, love, love goes and cleans those rooms. And love goes and picks up behind the kids, and love, and, 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 and Mr. Husband just leaves his underwear on the ground, and, and love picks it up and does the laundry and folds the laundry and puts the laundry away. Because that's what, that's what you're supposed to do, right? Not in covenant. Covenant's supposed to be 100%, 100%. This happens all the time in families. And it's not always the mom. It can sometimes be the dad or whatever. Sometimes it's even the child where the parent isn't doing their part, and the child has to become savior or I uh, shouldn't say savior, but parent. So you can imagine, over time, again, just like the body, over time, if, not, if everyone's not doing 100%, if other people are doing 60%, and this could be emotionally, like a husband or a wife is not really loving or serving the other with all their heart, needs don't get met. Or it could be in finances, one is working, the other is not. Or it could be in chores or something like this. It could, it just could apply to any aspect but families work by everyone doing their part. Everyone doing 100%. So you can imagine, and, and, and by the way, that doesn't mean like everyone has to get a job, right? Like Michelle and I are a team. So she, she works hard, but she doesn't bring in necessarily any income. And she's honored for that because she's serving our family and I'm, so I'm doing my part, she's doing her part. Okay, so I don't mean to say it has to look a certain way. It could also look like both of us working. Okay, so either way, it's just making sure it works. And everyone doing 100%. But if everyone's not doing 100%, so let's say again, Mr. Dad, uh, Mr. Husband is, is just sitting watching TV. It's not that that's bad all the time, but he's watching TV. He's not really doing his share day in and day out, week in and week out, month out, month out, month in, month out. Over time, he's doing 60%. She's doing 140, plus the load of the kids. As they get older, they're messier. Oh my goodness. I mean, seriously, I worked with youth. And they, it was like they didn't know how to take care of their own stuff. They made more mess than they cleaned up. I was appalled. Right? I mean, as a youth pastor, and guess what I did? Because I'm a good youth pastor. I cleaned up behind them. Why did I do that? Right. So, after a while, I began to learn to empower them. Okay, but that's the point. Here's what happens with most, most homes. Sooner or later, in a codependent relationship like that, 
And the person who's, who's doing all the serving isn't, isn't always a victim, okay? Sometimes she does it out of fear. Sometimes she does it out of control. Sometimes she does it because she thinks out of false guilt she thinks she has to. What happens is sooner or later, when you're carrying 140%, sooner or later, you're going to get ticked. You're going to burn out. This is why burnout happens in churches. This is why burnout happens in homes. This is why burnout happens in marriages. Sooner or later, the person's going to burn out. This is how it happens a lot of times. They say, forget it, I'm out of here. Or they freak out in other ways. Now, that's not what the Lord wants. Okay? That's a whole other subject. What do you do when someone else is not carrying their load? How do we walk in forgiveness? How do we communicate? Because usually what happens, the mom will then start yelling at her kids, right? I always do everything. Never pick up. No, 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 no. And those kind of words are actually disempowering and actually cause the child to feel that they're an idiot and powerless. So actually, the mom can actually facilitate the brokenness. Okay, so there's wrong ways to do this. Most people do it the wrong way. Okay? They start freaking out on people. They start yelling at them. They, they, they start uh, uh, nagging the husband. Okay, happens all the time. Nag, 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 nag. Oh, I'm just trying to get nag, 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 nag. And the husband's just like, shut up. Okay, oh, I shouldn't say that, but that's what. Okay, so they, this is what usually happens, and it doesn't work. And oftentimes, these relationships, whether cohabiting or married, they will leave. I'm not saying that's right. Like we talked about last week, divorce is not the will of God. There's other ways to go about this. We're not going to talk about reconciliation and all that today. What I want to talk about, though, is that mom. And I want to talk about are those kids and that dad. The reason why she's getting burnt out is not because she's doing her part. It's because she's doing her part plus others. Now, there's other reasons people burn out, like they're not resting in Jesus and they're not living out of intimacy. Or There's a, lot of, there's a couple other dynamics to this. There's, but also... That mom can't just blame them. The best and healthiest thing is if the mom will realize, I'm going to do my part, but I'm not going to do your part, but I'm going to empower you to do your part. And so what she does is we, she does what we call set boundaries. So let's say the mom tells her children, <clears throat> I'm not going to clean your room. That's your room. Now assume that she's taught them, right? Like our, we've been teaching our kid, our son, uh, I've got three kids, but just starting with John David, who worked with him the most, we've started teaching him how to clean his room since he was two. That's like pulling teeth. Okay, now he's six, he's pretty good at it, okay? He can do it a little bit. Okay, now, but that's because we worked at it. We call, that's called training and equipping and being very patient and loving and not expecting a two-year-old to do what a six-year-old can, but expecting a six-year-old to do what a six-year-old can. And so that mom would say to her children, <clears throat> let's say they're teenagers, you're gonna clean your room. This is what it looks like to clean your room. Okay. And if you don't, there's gonna be consequences, you know, whatever. Here's what most moms will do. But they didn't do it, but they don't do it. They never listen to me. And so then she goes and she does it for them, and then she yells at them. That's disempowering and taking, not taking the responsibility. A person who understands their part and understands your part will empower you to do your part. Hey, this is my part. Let me teach you how to clean your room. Now here's your part. Clean your room. And if you don't, there's consequences. That, that's good parenting, by the way. That's just good stuff. Not getting mad. You don't even need to get mad as a parent. You just go, do this, or this is your consequence. They don't do it. You don't have to even have to get mad. You go, oh, oh, that stinks. You didn't clean your room. Here's your consequence. But most people are afraid. And then in marriages, most people are afraid because if they say to the husband, let's give an example, you know, I, I really can't do everything, so I'd like you to help with like one thing. Maybe I cook and you do the dishes or like uh, you do the laundry or you take, put the kids to bed and do the bath while I do this. You know, the shared load kind of a thing rather than you just sitting watching the TV. And the person says, no, I don't really want to do that. Then you simply, you set a boundary. You say, you say, 
well, I'm going to cook. If you guys don't do the dishes, there's no dinner tomorrow. You don't have to get mad. You just say it. You know, just because we need to share the load around here. And that's my boundary. So then you cook, and then the, the dishes weren't done. So t- the, next, the next night, what do you do? Well, most women, <clears throat> or most women who deal with this particular issue, I mean, I don't mean most women, I just meant most women who deal with this issue, they'll do the dishes because it didn't get done. It didn't get done. So I have to do it. And most women will never confront the husband because why? They're afraid of their anger, which is why they serve in the first place. They're not serving sacrificially because they're so wonderful and holy. They're serving because they're afraid of anger. It's not love. It's not love. They're afraid of their kids freaking out, the two-year-old freaking out. Oh, wait, now the 20-year-old freaking out. This is why we have 18-year-olds who don't know how to do stuff that they need to do. So the issue is not that mom is, 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 is a victim, that mom needs to actually take responsibility for her part and not for others. And she needs to empower her family and then allow the consequences to play out. This is how it would work healthily. Well, I found that in the church, pastor, in the Western church, not in the Bible, but in the, in the Western church, pastor equals church to most people. The church needs to do this. The church should do this. And the pastor is the surrogately delegated person, the surrogate Christian for so many. Not necessarily in our church, okay? I don't think that we're necessarily uh, missing this completely, but I do want to confront some things. Right? I'm not necessarily correcting us like, oh, we're not doing stuff, but, but listen, in most churches, pastor is the surrogate Christian. You know what I mean by that, right? Well, don't we pay you for that? The pastor does evangelism. I'm going to get a little mad right now, okay? The pastor does evangelism. The pastor calls people. The pastor, or, well, we have a team of pastors. The pastors make the phone calls. The pastors care for everyone's need. The pastors go to the hospital. The pastors do everything. Wait a minute, last time I checked, the Bible says that every one of us care for the needs of the poor. Every one of us practice hospitality. Every one of us is called to disciple nations. Every one of us is to pray. Well, no, 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 we pay the pastor to pray. And don't we pay the pastor to read the Bible for us and study the Bible so then we don't have to, so then you can give us a sermon? I'm telling you, I get a little mad right now. I'm getting a little mad. This is personal. This is personal stuff right here. No, no, I, I, I've... There have been times, it happens more than you would know, where people are mad at me because I didn't do their part or I didn't do someone else's part. And they want me to be a surrogate and they want me to be the church. Now, I have a responsibility, don't I? I have a huge responsibility. Huge responsibility. And I love it. And I love this church, and I love pastoring this church. I'm called to this. I believe very specifically I've been appointed to be the pastor of this church, but I'm not the only one. Every time in the Bible it talks about leadership in the Bible, in the New Testament, it's always collective. It's always elders, pastors. And we have a collective group of leaders in this church, but they're only some of the body. They're only some. They're awesome leaders, but they're only some. And we as leaders, and me specifically, we have a responsibility. Like, for example, if a team is not doing good, we're going to look to the coach, right? I'm like a coach. But am I I every position on on the team? I'm not the whole team. 
but I am the coach. So I am tremendously responsible for whether or not that team plays good or not. Whether or not we are becoming the church that God has called us to be. And you know, I used to think here that uh, the verse 13, till we come to the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, I used to think that was like when Jesus comes back. You know, that was like the epitome. You know, most of us do that. We read that into the Bible because we think that's impossible. That'll only happen when Jesus comes back. That's so tough, unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. And so we just read that into that. No, 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 I, I never realized it. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that, that that's, that's the beginning. That's step one. I equip each one to do their part. Each one is empowered to do the work of ministry. And that brings us into a place of unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. What does that mean? That means each one of you taking responsibility to believe God for your life. To believe God. Each one of you taking responsibility to seek God and to know the Lord. Each one of you taking responsibility to partner with God in the work that God has called you to do. I'm to empower you, to equip you. That's my number one responsibility. Now, am I first and foremost a Christian? Yeah. Am I not? I am first and foremost a member of the body of Christ, and I'm a Christian. And you'll see here, um, just listen to this, in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, one of the uh, more important passages of Scripture, you'd think that I would pray and meditate these a lot if I'm a pastor, right? It says right here in 1 Peter chapter 5, the elders who are among you I exhort. What did it say? The elders who are what? Among you. Among you. Why, why, why among you? Because we're all part of the same body, right? So the elders that are among you, I exhort. I am a fellow elder. This is Peter talking. I'm a fellow elder and a witness, witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Listen to what he says to people like me. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, right? You're not separate from them. You live in, among them. We are all part of the body. Shepherd the flock that is among you, serving as overseers, basically covering it's refer, referring uh, to protection and covering. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not because you have to. That could be because of guilt or, or any such thing, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain. Right? So if a pastor wants dishonest gain, wants to be rich, out. Okay, so that's, that's legitimate. But eagerly, right? There's this willingness, this desire to serve other people. I really want to do it because I want to serve people. I want to love people. I want, I want to do what God's called me to do. I, I want, I, I, my, my desire is to be faithful to God, right? He says, verse 3, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. So there really is an entrusting that happens, a stewarding that God has given people to me for me to serve them. But notice it says, not as lords what it, literally, it's like not as landlords, not as like you own them and they owe you something. Not as like you get to control people and tell them what to do, but serving them as a shepherd serves sheep. What does a shepherd do? Leads them, protects them, feeds them, right? That's like literally what Paul is referring to when he says, equip the saints with the word of ministry. You know, we'll do that. We'll be like, oh, my past, you know, the, the, the pastors feed the sheep, feed the sheep. And we just kind of boil it down to just, teaching the word. Well, of course I'm supposed to teach the word. That's how I equip you. I preach the word of God and I lay out the word of God and that's the blueprint. And then I empower you not just to know it but to live it. That is how I equip you, by feeding you. But it's not like, you know, I just like spoon, you know what I'm saying? It's not like spoon feed. I empower you to live for Christ. But notice what, I love this, what this says. It's such a core thing for me. He says, not as lords or lording over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock. Do you know what the prerequisite for leadership is in the New Testament church? Being, living it first. Any leader who doesn't live it first is not allowed to be a leader. 
They do. They get into it because of position. But I am called by God to be a Christ follower first. I'm supposed to live it first. That means I'm supposed to trust God. I'm supposed to know God. That doesn't mean I'm supposed to be like perfect. I mean, I'm on the journey with you. But I mean like I'm supposed to go there first. I'm supposed to die to myself. I'm supposed to love the Lord. I'm supposed to set an example. And it doesn't mean I don't mess up. But I'm supposed to be an example of one. When I do mess up, what do you do? <laughs> that I would repent. That I would grow continually. That's number one, what a leader does, what the pastors do. Live it. Model it. And number two, equip you to do it. Equip you to live it. I am not to do your part, though. I'm not to do all the evangelism. I'm not to do all the caring. I'm not to do all the justice. I'm not to do all the serving other people. And even all the leaders in our church, the leaders of the church, you say, well, well, Katie, she's over life groups, right? So she makes sure, and Natalie, she's on the care team, so she makes sure everyone's cared. No. If Natalie's caring for too many people, she will burn out because it was never meant to be her or my or Debbie's responsibility to care for everyone's needs. Sam, Sam's the outreach pastor. Well, go Sam. Reach everyone for Jesus, Sam. Go do evangelism for us. Most churches think like that because they think like a program instead of a lifestyle. Every single one of us is called to the lifestyle of following Jesus Christ in community. Sam simply is going to lead that charge and unite us and rally us and, and call forth those evangelists. The evangelist equips everyone to do what? Evangelism. What do the pastors do? Equip everyone to care for one another. What does the teacher do? Equips everyone by giving them the words so that they can go and impart that to others. Like who? Like people they're witnessing to. Like their own kids. What does the apostle do? Well, the apostle sets out the blueprint for what a kingdom looks like on earth as in heaven. The apostle is usually a, 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 a pastor of pastors over a movement of churches, church plants. And then what, do, what, do, what does a prophet do? They release the gifts of the spirit. They don't just hear God themselves. Tom is a prophet in our church. Is the prophet prophetic coordinator we call him, he releases the gifts of the Spirit in all of us so that each one of us, each one of us care for one another, each one of us love one another, each one of us serve one another, each one of us obey what God has called us to do. And this isn't just, again, like in your specific like little calling, it's like us doing what God has called us to do. What I believe it looks like every believer spending daily time with God, every believer living in community. The Bible tells us to gather Every believer serving one another in community, which could mean you serving the kids or helping with teardown or, or whatever, like many of you do. Could just mean you serving when there's financial need in someone else's life. Is it that I'm supposed to meet everyone's financial need? No. But what should happen? We should find out that need. Now imagine that. Let's talk about that financial need real quick. Let's say somebody has a financial need. What if they never say anything? Am I responsible? The Bible actually says, if anyone is sick, let him call the elders. You know how many people have gotten mad at the church, which really equals pastors, because nobody called them? But the Bible says you're supposed to call. Do you know how many people I know who, I just don't feel connected. I don't feel connected to the church. I don't feel like people like know me. You go to a group? No? Oh, I could, I could guess why you don't feel connected. How much is it my responsibility and how much is it yours? You should know the answer to this question. What is it? How much is my responsibility and how much is yours? 100%, 100%. So if you're not in a group, who's responsible? You are. If I don't cultivate a culture where we have groups, if I don't lead leaders where we have lots of groups, 
I'm responsible. See, when people don't feel connected, it breaks my heart. When people leave because they don't feel cared for, it breaks my heart. And guess what? I am responsible. I am. Now, I don't walk in false guilt. I don't beat myself up. I know that we are the ones who are going to make it happen. But I take responsibility because I'm the coach. Think about it. If a, if a team isn't winning, it's either because the coach needs to change or the team needs to pick it up. It could be both. But what does the coach do? The coach empowers the team. So if there's somewhere where we're not, where we're not firing on all cylinders, if, we're, if there's not a 100% fruit in our church, that's okay. We're still growing. Amen? That's where I come in patiently and lovingly and I keep us growing. I keep us growing. So let's say there's a financial need. Somebody doesn't tell us. We don't know. How would we know? I actually had somebody, again, this happens a lot. I had somebody so mad at the church because we didn't come in and help them. Never told us they were out of work. Never. Never. How, what am I supposed to read minds? But what happens when somebody does share that need and we don't come to their help? Who's responsible? We are. Because the Bible commands us to share our resources and meet needs. Physically, tangibly. That that's what love is. Now what happens though, if in a community like this, if somebody tells us they have a need... And we go to meet that need, and let's say you help them financially, but they're not living in integrity, or they're not working hard, they're being lazy, like they're not working, looking for a job, but they want us to help them. Who's responsible? Both of us are, aren't they? Aren't we? But here's the deal. The Bible says if you, don't eat, if you don't work, you don't eat. There's a tremendous responsibility on the people who are receiving help. It, the answer is really very simple. Most of us don't want to confront other people if they're living in sin. But the Bible doesn't just tell us to share needs, share resources to help people physically with their needs. It also tells us if somebody is in sin, we should correct them. But we don't like that one. So again, if you're the rescuing mom who just keeps doling out money, or you're the angry mom who says, I already tried that. I already tried that. I'm not going to help anyone else, Right? And this is also what happens with pastors. Pastors will rescue, 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 counsel, 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 try to meet every one of the needs, and then they'll freak out. They'll, they'll, do you know that the dropout rate, pastors don't last generally more than 10 years. Why? I think it's codependency. I think it's because those pastors are trying to do what they're not called to do, but I also think it's because the church believes that they're the surrogate p- Christian. But what would it look like if we all did our share? What would it look like if we confronted if we confronted the person who's living in sin? What if we confronted the person who has laziness? What if we said, your responsibility is to hear God so that he can provide? People come to me, can you pray for me? How about I pray with you? I can't believe God for your miracle, but I can believe God with you. So what would it look like if every one of us walked in the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God? You did your part to believe God. You did your part to seek God and to hear his voice, spending daily time with God. What if you were living in community and sharing your needs openly, praying for one another, and when there was a need, we say, you know what? We want your kid to come to Jesus too. And we pray with the same fervency as they do. And they don't have a job, and and we say, hey, brother, you know, brother, sister, what, what are you doing to look for a job? What's God saying to you? What's God saying to you? And they can actually tell you, well, the Lord's telling me this, and the Lord's telling me that. Well, let's help you. 
You know, sometimes it's just like car breaks down and stuff like that. And let me tell you, this church, we help people. Some of you don't realize that. Some of you don't realize, behind the scenes, there is so much financial blessing going on. People help one another car repairs, give anonymously. We have helped families in this economy stay in a home. We've helped people get into a, uh, and I say we meaning collectively, we've like pulled resources together. I mean, co- I mean we like, one family has helped a lot more than other. I'm talking, it happens. It happens. Is it happening 100%? Maybe not. Is there, are there un, no unmet needs? You know, we've, we've Acts chapter 2. Everyone had what they needed. Praise God, right? But remember, Acts chapter 2, they were discipled. They were submitted to the discipleship of the word. They were walking with God together. I guarantee if somebody wasn't doing their part, I, I guarantee they rebuked them. I mean, somebody died for lying to the Holy Spirit. Two people died. To the, you know what I'm saying? You, you, don't, you don't get the kind of like place where everybody gets their needs met. You don't get that by... Some people get to be lazy and other people get to help out financially. Another thing, like with teardown, you know, like we have to tear down in here. And I'll tell you, when you guys help, which for every week you guys do, it saves like 30 to 45 minutes for the teardown team. See, that's, that's team. Does that make sense? When, when, when there's financial needs, people are helping behind the scenes. But you know, right now we have family that needs a good family who's working and God's doing great things in life. They need money to get into a, an apartment, just a down payment. We can help them get their, on their feet, right? We have people, we have families in our church who need cars. We could pull money together, buy a used car, or somebody could donate a car, right? Now, how would you know that if I didn't tell you the needs, right? This is what needs to happen. Living in community, if we could put that other side up there. Spending daily time with God. Living in community, serving one another, and reaching out to lost. I believe this is what it looks like for you to do your part. Most of ministry, most of ministry people say, well, I'm called to kids, or I'm called to youth, or I'm called to addiction ministry. All that is is the people you're called to. Every one of us is called to people, to reach lost people and to disciple them. It doesn't matter who they are. People are your ministry. To serve the body of Christ and then to reach out that there would be more other people who, who, who would know the Lord. It was really very simple. Jesus said, what you freely receive, freely give. Whatever he has given you, whatever you have received from the Lord, you give it away. If he's healed you, you go give healing away, right? If he's blessed you financially, you give it away. Just like he said to Abraham, I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. That's our covenant with God. We get blessed. We get hooked up if we walk by faith like Abraham did. Just like Katie was saying, if we walk in the covenant that God has given to us, we'll receive the blessing of God, but we'll give it away. That's what it means to be a disciple. And that's what I'm called to do is to live that out first. I'm called to live that out and I'm called to equip you to do the same. And if each one of us would do our part, there would be no unmet need. Why? Because every joint would supply what every other joint or every other, every part would do their part and every part of the body would meet the need of every other member. Every joint would supply. There would be a unity. There would be a maturity. And the world would marvel, wouldn't they? We'd be that family on mission. Let me close with this verse here. Luke, come on up. Luke's gonna lead us in response here in just a second. But I wanna read a verse to you from Hebrews chapter 13. I can find it. Ha. There it is. Just listen to this in Hebrews 13. It's verse 7 and 17. I'm skip a bunch of verses. Verse 7. Remember those who rule over who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. I tell people, I'm either called to be the pastor here or I'm not. If I'm not, you should run. If I am and you're called to be here, we're good to go. But the other question is, do I live it? Follow my faith. Consider the conduct of my life. Not just me, 
but people like Luke or Debbie or Kurt or other leaders in our church. We honor those who live it. And notice how important it is that, we, that, that I set an example and that you follow. But it says, remember those who rule over you. Isn't that interesting? Who rule over you. It's not authority to control. It's authority to equip. My only authority is to build up. The, uh, Paul said, my authority is to build you up and not tear you down. To simply make you the person you, God has called you to be. But that is an authority God has given me. Listen to what it says in verse 17. Obey those who rule over you. Well, that, that just, can we scratch that? That doesn't fit in the Western Bible. We don't like that one. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. As those who must give an account, let them do so with joy and not with grief. That would be unprofitable for you. Submission is the hard attitude. Obedience is the actual action. What are you obeying? If I teach you the word. Do you realize what this is saying? When it says obey and, and submit, it's not talking about me controlling you. It's talking about you receiving the word. Because if all I'm doing is living it out and giving you the word, then all you're doing is hearing the word, receiving it humbly with a submitted heart, you know, good attitude, like, yeah, amen, Lord, and then obeying it. All you're doing is receiving discipleship. Do you know why he, God did this? Do you know why God put some in the church to be apostles, and pastors and teachers and all that? Because fools hate correction. See, if you're not receiving discipleship, if you're not receiving correction, if you're not allowing others to speak into your life, it's going to bring destruction in your life. And it breaks my heart. As a pastor, I'll see people fall in sin. And guess what? I'm not responsible for their choices, but I still, as a pastor, there's a realm of responsibility I have to protect the sheep. It breaks my heart every time. It's a tough one. It is tough as a pastor to watch some people choose to sin or some people not feel cared for. And sometimes as a pastor, I don't know what my responsibility is. But here it's pretty clear, right? And so I'm challenging you. Listen to that verse 17. Submit. Obey. I've not been given an authority, or the leaders in the church have not been given an authority to control, but simply to serve you and to empower you. So if that's my calling, then guess what? My success is you. My calling is to fulfill your calling. Success for me looks like when the obedience to Jesus happens without me. When we care for needs, when people get called on the phone and people get you know, pursued because they, they're missing or needs get met financially or emotionally or, or, or people get reached, lost people come to Jesus and I had nothing to do with it. That's success. It doesn't matter the size of the church. Success when it works without me. Why? Because I laid down my life. My son, I know you're up here for a while. My son, one time, I told him to go clean his room, right? He's five years old, now he's six. Go clean your room. He starts complaining. I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. Da, da, da. I, know he's, I know he's full of it, right? I said, son, I said, son, I would help you. I literally said this to him. I would help you if you gave me 100% of your heart. And he looked at me with a, mur- a smirk. Like, he kind of knew what I was talking about, but not really. You know, kids are like, I have no idea what you're talking about that. I said, buddy... If I believed that you were giving me 100% of your heart, that you're going to, oh, yeah, Dad, I'm going to go clean my room. Yeah, I'm just going to give it a try. I would want to help you. But I said, right now, I don't want to help you. You ever feel like that where you're like, I don't really want to help that person. 
That's why. A lot of times, well, it could be your own callousness, but this wasn't the case. I love my son. I knew. Why? It's not my responsibility. And what he wanted was me to do it for him. People do this all the time. They manipulate other people with the word. You're a Christian. You should be helping me. What they're doing is, I'm not taking responsibility for me. I'm going to manipulate you for you to do something for me. Pastors do that too, right? Now, I, what I told my son is, if you'll give me 100% of your heart, and I even use the word responsibility, if you'll take responsibility for your room. He always goes, Dad, I don't even know what that word means. I go, I know. If you'll give me 100% of your heart. If you give me 100% of your heart. He understood that. Because he knows math now. If you'll give 100% of your heart, guess what I told him? I'll help you. Let me tell you, I know who I am as a pastor. I will die for you. I will give my life for you. I love you. But when I see somebody who won't give me 100% of their heart, it doesn't matter how much I give them. I can't believe God for you. I can't obey God for you. I can't get the miracle for you. But I can equip you and empower you. And we can meet those needs. We can give somebody the leg up who's in debt, but they're serving the Lord and they're repenting and they're, and they're changing their finances. We could alleviate their debt. We could help people who've made bad choices, but now are making the good ones. We could come alongside brothers and sisters who have been bound in sin because of bad choices and we could help them get free from sin through unconditional love, but also through empowering them and confronting them accountable. Amen?